Got some uh, issues going on this morning, uh, both personal, technical, and <laughs> otherwise, I guess. Anyway, good to see each of you this morning. Um, in the book of Hebrews, I guess I got to plug this in. Tell you what, I'll just wait on that anyway. In the book of Hebrews, all right, we're in chapter actually five and six in the third warning passage. Before we jump back into that though, let's just review for just a moment. There were three big key words, not big in the sense of long words, but three main words that uh, we've tried to uh, reiterate time and time again about uh, just as you think of the book of Hebrews to try to think your way through the book, all right? And you just, you kind of get this picture of what the book of Hebrews is all about. If you just sum it up in one thing, you would just say it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he is superior. He is the ultimate, all right? Um, there are three words, though, that we are using to kind of organize the content of the book of Hebrews that all have something to do with him, all right? He is superior because of these three things. They all begin with P for sake of alliteration, which really, in, in this case, I think helps. But uh, the first one being what? His person. He is superior because of his person. And really, uh, if, if, if he was not who he is, then obviously the rest of it wouldn't matter. All right. So who he is is foundational to it all. All right. So his person. What chapters in the book of Hebrews, again, as we're just trying to think about it in a, in a, in a big fashion here, what chapters does or, or what chapters kind of present the argument for Jesus' superior person? person. Chapters 1 through 4, uh, yes, 1 through 4, okay, I don't know why I hesitated there, but 1 through 4, as I said, I'm having issues this morning, um, 1 through 4, and uh, really at the end of chapter 4, there's a small, several verses there, the last three verses of chapter 4 make the per, you know, transition into the second P, which that second P is what? His priesthood, all right? And uh, he's superior because of who he is and his person, and then he's superior because of his priesthood, and really that has to do with what he's done, all right? The, what he, and, and in a way, what he is still doing for us, all right? Part of it's done, part of it's ongoing, um, which we will see. But um, who he is, what he's done... And uh, in, in the scope of that, then, the third, well, what chapters, basically, did we say are covered by or presenting his priesthood? Five through ten, all right, and really it's kind of partway through chapter ten that it transitions into the third P, the third main section of the book of Hebrews begins with the letter P as well, and it is that, what, his superior principle. And by that, really, it's talking about faith in Christ. That's the principle there. Faith in Him. Because of who He is, what He's done, we need to have faith in Him. All right? And uh, really, that's the rest of the book, the middle part of chapter 10 through 13. Um, so let's back up a second. In His person, all right, talking about His superior person, there were three main 
three words, three main ideas that are presented in the argument of Hebrews concerning his person. His, his person is superior because of what? First of all, his deity. These all don't begin with the same letter, but his deity and then his humanity and then his faithfulness, all right? fact that he, he completely was faithful to the job that he was given by God the Father, carrying out the Father's will. Uh, he completed it completely. He, he did not fail in any uh, aspect of it, not even any fraction of it. And so, and only that can be said of him, not anybody else who's ever served the Lord or been called of the Lord for anything, only the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? And uh, so then in his priesthood, we started... Uh, in chapter 5, talking about his priesthood, we see in the first 10 verses of chapter 5, kind of a, a synopsis, just a brief summary about priesthood and, and kind of the basic ideas of what a priest does. He represents man to God. Uh, he has to be called of God. He's taken out of men. And he was called to, and part of what he did was to offer sacrifices, all right? And then... In uh, verse 5 of those of chapter 5, we see that after laying out those general principles, we see that there's just a very brief explanation of how the Lord Jesus Christ met those. He did those things. All right. Then, before chapter 5 closes, the writer of Hebrews, whether it's the Apostle Paul or whoever, he digresses again or stops, perhaps, I guess is the best way to say it. He pauses and reiterates again the seriousness of salvation by issuing the now third warning passage. How many warning passages have we said that there are in the book of Hebrews? Five. We, we, this is the third one. All right. There are actually another in chapter 10 and another in chapter 12. Uh, uh, this is the third here. Remember, the first one was the first several verses of chapter 2, and then there was one in chapter 3 into chapter 4, which dealt with a serious warning concerning salvation that uh, we don't, because, you know, because of unbelief, we miss his rest. And let me reiterate again, because this is as we're launching into looking, continuing to look at this third warning passage now, this is very important to say, but every one of these warning passages deal with the same subject matter, and that is, again, that salvation is very serious. We shouldn't take it lightly. The message of salvation is extremely serious. The whole issue of salvation is extremely serious, and um, people can be religious, even have all kinds of religious experiences, and think that they're really spiritual experiences, but still not be saved. All right, now for some people, that's very hard to understand. But uh, we, we have to keep in mind that we see numerous examples of that in the Bible, and we're going to look at a few of those this morning, I believe. But uh, there's examples of that. There's, you know, the Bible's teaching confirms that. And there's only one thing, all right, uh, that makes a person saved, and that's biblical faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, in the morning message, we're going we're gonna to talk specifically about that, all right? But uh, here in, in this hour, we're continuing in looking at the book of Hebrews, 
And in chapter 6 is where we are. In fact, I'm just going to do this for sake of time this morning. We've spent a little time here reviewing. Uh, but I'm going to read a number, several verses here, then we'll have a word of prayer and jump right into it. We, we already have started looking at this warning, but we want to continue this and, and, Lord willing, finish out looking at this warning passage this morning, all right? The, the warning passage begins in verse 11 of chapter 5 and goes through the end of chapter 6, verse 20 of chapter 6, all right? But I want to, I want to begin reading here in verse 4 and read down at least through verse 12, all right? <coughs> Excuse me. Here the Bible says, Hebrews 6, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, Seeing that seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that come, cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work of love and labor of your excuse me, your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right, let's pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Father, this morning as we uh, continue our study in the book of Hebrews and then specifically as we continue looking at this uh, warning passage, it's been two weeks since we had begun it, uh, Father, but uh, I pray that uh, as we jump back into this that uh, you'd help us uh, obviously we have a number of folks out of town this morning and perhaps some sick and so on, but Lord, we pray that you'd help us who are here this morning and then if others might be listening uh, as well, them, Lord, that you'd help us to understand this portion of your word. This is a portion of your word that's very often misunderstood. And so I pray that you'd help us to uh, have clarity and direction from, from you this morning in looking at your word and a proper understanding of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for His sake we pray, amen. All right, keep in mind the context of this warning. We, we had looked at that last time when we began it, but if you remember, okay, the, this, is, this is kind of toward the front, but it's in this, this bigger portion of Hebrews that deals with the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the verses immediately preceding it the, the, the verse immediately preceding the warning passage says, it, it's talking about Jesus, but it says he's called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, then he, then he, he digresses a little bit or pauses to just, again, issue this statement. And he, he says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. All right, in other words, he wants to say, he wants to talk about this subject that he had just introduced about Christ, Lord Jesus, being 
a priest called of God, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right? Then he, he pauses, issues this warning, but then at the end of this warning, verse 20 of chapter 6, he says, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and so on it goes. So again, keep in mind that this is, this is a, a pause in the presentation of Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right? And he stops and issues this warning, all right? So this is, this is important because this is the context of this warning. Everything in, in Scripture has a context, and it's important that we, we keep things in context. Now, as we've already seen, and especially in the book of Hebrews, there are many, many statements, you know, kind of small portions, a verse or so that we look at, and we can say, yes, these are there's timeless truths here. There are universal principles. For, again, for instance, again, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, but it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. All right, that's a universal principle, yes, but in its context, it is often kind of misapplied. Well, I shouldn't say misapplied, but it, we don't always look at it in the context that it's in. It, that, the, the, that statement in its context is emphasizing that Jesus died once for all sin, once for all time for all sin. That's, that's in its context what it's talking about. All right? But obviously there's a principle there that's true. All right? Everybody can expect death and judgment. Those things have been appointed for all people. All right? So there is that universal truth. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, this is perhaps, and, well, this is perhaps the, the most misunderstood, the most difficult passage in the book of Hebrews. Okay? Uh, and that's saying something because there's a number of passages in Hebrews that are kind of, uh, that take some carefulness to deal with, all right? But this is probably the most, uh, one of those most misunderstood and misused passages oftentimes here. And so we want to be careful in looking at it. Now, we, we see, again, the whole warning passage goes from verse 11 of chapter 5 through verse 20 of chapter 6. You can kind of break this warning down. If you look at just the warning itself, you can kind of break it down into several sections here because as it's moving in progress here, he begins, you know, the warning after just talking, introducing the subject of Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then in the first part of the warning, he, he makes a, what we could say an accusation. I have some alliteration here again. An accusation of immaturity, all right? And he's saying, you know, I really want to talk a lot about this, but I'm not, you know, you all can't handle this because you're really not ready for it is the idea, all right? And he's, he's saying how they should, by this time, be able to be teachers of this and, and not be just continuing to dwell in very uh, fundamental issues, all right? Um, but then he goes, so there's, there's this, this accusation of immaturity. We've, we've looked at these verses. I'm not going to dwell here. But I believe that the context of that accusation is more in the idea that he's saying some of them, now it's not everybody he was writing to, but some of them were still, because they weren't saved is the whole point, they were still toying around with the whole idea of, you know, we need to keep doing this in the Judaistic system. And they were still uh, wrapped up in all the types and 
the pictures of the Old Testament and not fully committed to Christ, not going on to following the fulfillment of all of those uh, types and pictures that were presented in the Old Testament. And that's as he gets to chapter 6, that's what he's saying. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. And he's talking about the, really the Old Testament foundation of Messiah. And he mentions, I, I think it was six uh, principles here that he talked about. And we've already talked about these. I don't want to uh, take the time to keep doing those right now. And he's saying that we need to go on from these, all right? And we need to just go on and... We need to follow Christ is the idea because he is the fulfillment of all these things. And then in verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permit. Now, the writer's obviously already done this, but it, it's like an exhortation. All right, people, let's go. We need to, you see the truth, let's, let's embrace it. Let's go on. Let's commit to it. Don't keep, you know, waiting in this idea of, of wavering back and forth in your minds and in your hearts. Right? And then he says this, the, the actual warning verses are in 4 through 6. And these are the tough verses. All right? But notice the word for at the beginning of verse 4. So he's explaining this. All right? Why? Well, he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. All right? Now, that's, that's, a, uh, that's one sentence, actually, and it's, it's, there's a mouthful there, all right? There, there's a lot in those verses. So, in trying to understand this, let's, let's answer several questions, all right? And uh, they're not, we're not necessarily going to answer them in this order, but number one, or, or one thing that we need to do is understand who is it that this is talking about, all right? Are these Christians who are, you know, having difficulties in their life? Is the, are these unsaved people? That's really the only two possibilities, right? Okay, um, so we need to answer that. We will. But then I think before we get to that, let's, let's ask the question, what exactly is this saying? In other words, you see the word impossible, all right? But what is it saying that is impossible? That's, a, that's an important question to answer here. And in, in the way that we read it, it can be a little difficult because uh, the sentence is broken up. It's not in what we would think as a normal flow of a sentence, okay? So uh, in verse 4 it says it is impossible. But the question then is, okay, what is it that's impossible? What is it? So in other words, if you notice in verse 4 it says for and then the next two words, it is, they're both italicized. Does everybody understand what the italics, the italicized words in our King James Bible mean? In other words, if words are italicized, the translators did that because there's not an actual Greek word rep that are, they're representing. They're just, they have to be supplied to understand, to make it make sense in English, okay, is the idea. But, but they're honest enough that they italicize it. That's the idea. Modern versions don't do that. They don't italicize anything, all right? But 
they're italicized, and so we understand that. But, but here's the thing. Even in, in the sake of that, what does the word it? It's a pronoun in English, right? It, and it stands for something, right? Now, and I'm not trying to get it bogged down in grammar here, but just think of this, okay? It is impossible. In English, all right, what is the word it? What function does it have in the sentence? I know some of you know this. Okay, but like subject, object, what, what is it? It's the subject of the sentence, okay? It. And then is is the verb. And impossible is actually an adjective, but it's, it's acting as the object, all right? So it's very, in that sense, it's a very simple structure here. It is impossible. But then the question is, okay, we know it's saying something's impossible, but what is impossible? That's the idea. The word it stands for something, okay? And really there's a whole lot. Most of the sentence is actually what it is, okay? <laughs> All right? So what is impossible? Well, what is impossible is to renew them again unto repentance, down in verse 6. Okay, that's what, is, what this passage is saying is impossible. Now, then the next question that begs to be asked is, who are them? Okay, now notice in these verses, again, it, I'm trying to do it this way because, again, when we just read through it, it's kind of spread out and it it's, can be easy to miss, okay? Cause, cause, and then you start reading it and you don't, you don't catch it all, you know, and I'm not saying you personally, but just gener generally people, and then they start supplying their own ideas, okay, which is dangerous, okay, because we want the Bible to speak for itself, right? So he says that it is impossible, what is impossible, to renew them, some certain people, again to repentance. That's what is impossible here, okay? So the them, who is the them? Who is it that is impossible to be renewed to repentance, that's, that's the, the, the question of the hour here, right? They are described, this group of people that he's talking about, or the people that would be impossible to renew again under repentance, who are they? They're described with certain phrases here. Now, let me just say that every one of these phrases describes all these people, and all of these phrases describe these people. So, in other words, for somebody to be in this category, every one of these statements has to be true of them. Okay, and now let me just say that up front, that limits greatly who this could be. Okay, but he says there are some people for whom it is impossible for them to be renewed again unto repentance. Now, let me just pause, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm only going to introduce this idea just to help you make a connection, although I'm not saying it's the same thing, okay? But everybody's heard the term, the unpardonable sin, Right? Now, I'm not saying that what's described here is the exact same thing as the unpardonable sin, but what I'm talking about is a matter of principle that when Jesus used the term that it's impossible for people to be forgiven of a particular sin, he was, he was saying, he was laying down a principle that there are, there's something that somebody can do that God will not forgive them of. Now, that, make, that seems like, whoa, you know, I thought God you know, could forgive, well... God can do anything except what his character limits him from doing, okay? And a person can put themselves in a position to where God will not forgive them, okay? And the people that are described here are people that put themselves in a position to which it is impossible for them to be brought fully or again to repentance, okay? That's the idea. But who are these people? Well, these statements, 
It's, uh, they, they are people who were, let me just read each statement here, and then we'll, we'll dissect them a little bit. People who were once enlightened, and people who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and people who were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and people who have tasted the good word of God, and people who have, it's the same verb, tasted the powers of the world to come, and people who fall away. So all, I think that's six descriptions here that have to be true of these people, that if these are true, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, is what he says. Okay? Does that make sense, looking at it that way? Okay? Now, we don't have time, I mean, to really get into detail, detail of all of this, but putting it this way, I think it helps kind of make more sense, okay? But he says there's certain people that it's impossible to bring them to repentance. Now, here's the big question, okay? Is this talking about people that are saved and somehow they do something that God says? All right, is it that or is this people who were not saved? But these things are true of them. Now, keep in mind that in the description of these people, you never see a statement such as they've been forgiven, they've been justified, they've been sanctified. I mean, none of that kind of biblical terminology that's used of salvation is used of these people, correct? Right? But these are people that have had some spiritual experiences. Just by looking at those descriptions, I mean, they've tasted the good. In other words, these are people that have been, uh, they've, they've been illuminated. They've been enlightened. They've seen light, spiritual light, okay? And they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've had some interaction with the heavenly gift. Now, again, some might say, what's the heavenly gift here? Is it salvation? Is it Jesus? I think that's more on track, and we'll get to that here, all right? And these people were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Notice it doesn't say they received the Holy Ghost. The language in Scripture is different. In the New Testament, it's clear that everyone from, and I'll just say it this way, I don't have time to get into all this right now, but everyone since at least the resurrection of Christ, who is truly saved, receives the Holy Spirit, and in the book of Acts, there's a few instances that are a little different that warrant, I mean, it's because it was a period of transition, but, but since the, these New Test, this New Testament church age, let me just put it this way, that all people who get saved, they receive the Holy Ghost, all right? And that is the wording, the word receive is the word that the Scripture uses consistently in that, Okay? Now, there is such a thing as the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's a different matter. Now, people can be filled with the Spirit when they receive Him, but the fullness of the Spirit is a whole different matter, okay, and so on. Now, uh, so, but they've, they've had a participation in the matters of the Holy Ghost is the idea here. It doesn't say they received the Holy Ghost, okay? And then they've also tasted the good Word of God, and they've tasted the powers of the world to come. The word powers here is a word used in the New Testament for miraculous signs. So these people have had exposure to and had interaction with miracles. 
And it says of the world to come, which is interesting, okay? And again, keep in mind the context of all this. He's, he's been comparing Old Testament, New Testament, okay? Now, again, when we, when we think of this group of people this is describing, we say, okay, is this saved people? Is this unsaved people? And let me just go ahead and put it out, all right? I don't believe there's any way this is saved people for several reasons. We, we talked about this with the last warning passage, but there are clear categorical statements that we see in the Scripture, and several of them by the Lord Jesus Himself, that there's no way that they're unclear whatsoever, where Jesus says that all of those that are truly His, okay, and I'm, I'm not making a direct quote here, I'm just emphasizing a statement, but he says, all those that are truly his are saved forever. In fact, in John 10, he says, they, his sheep, hear his voice, they follow him, and they shall never perish. Now, let me just say, when when Jesus says, they shall never perish, he doesn't leave any room for any kind of exceptions in that. Okay, remember he told the woman at the well that if you drink of the, what, what, the water from this well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I can give you, what does he say? You will never thirst again. Again, it's a picture there of salvation, but he's saying if, if you get salvation from me, it's, it's a for sure forever thing. It, it's, it's a once and done deal, so to speak. It, it, there's no re- need to repeat it. There's no need to renew it. I mean, it's a once-and-done thing, and it's there forever. But, but the whole teaching of the Bible, of the New Testament, makes it clear that that is the case. Now, there are some people that like to take passages such as we're reading this morning and some others and construe them to say, okay, this is talking about a saved person that loses his salvation, and I would contend there's no way you can prove that this is talking about a saved person. Because the statements that are made here are not statements that are used in the New Testament of a saved person, necessarily. Okay? They, it's obviously talking about someone that has had some great opportunities. And someone who, and I, when I say someone, I'm not limiting it to one person, but people who have had great exposure to spiritual interaction. But yet, they, in the end, is the idea, they turn away. That's what the fall away here is in, in verse 6. It's the, in, it's the word in which we get apostasy from. In other words, if they apostatize, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance is what it says. In other words, you'll never bring them back to repentance if they, and the idea is if they cross that line. Maybe I'd say, do we have any examples of this in the New Testament? Glad you asked, because I believe we do, all right? Um, in fact, let me, let me, let's do this. Go back, let's hold our place here. And we may not get through every verse in this, in this warning here this morning, but I think that we'll get the idea of what it is, okay, and not have to keep dwelling on it. I'm not wanting to beat a dead horse or anything, all right? Matthew chapter 10. Once you go back, I just want to point something out here, show you an example of something. Matthew chapter 10. Keep in mind this also. We introduced this with the last warning passage, but in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, and I can't remember off the top of my head what chapter in Luke it's in, but we have the parable of the sower, all right? And 
four types of soils that the same sower cast the same seed in, but there were four different results because of the condition of the soil. And in, in that parable, the obvious point, now parables, a lot of people go way out and off in, when it comes to parables too, because parables are not necessarily meant that you take every single part of it and it represents some great spiritual truth. No, the idea of parable represents one truth, okay? And what Jesus is saying is we need to be careful to prepare the soil of our hearts to receive his word. That's really what it amounts to. And that, that's true for people that need to be saved. It's also true for Christians. As we hear God's word throughout our Christian life, we need to be careful that we're not hardened to it. Now, I'm not saying hardened to unbelief like Hebrews chapter 3 talked about, but we can be, we can be stiff-necked toward God sometimes and rebellious, can't we? Now, he will work in our lives to help correct that if that's the case, but we can be that way is what I'm saying. And I can tell you that from personal experience, all right? Um, but Matthew chapter 10, keep that in mind, the soils. And, and again, we asked the question, we, we used that example before, which of those four soils were, you know, represent people that were saved? Well, we know the fourth, and we know the first wasn't, no way, but the other two in the middle both had some initial reception of the word. But they stopped short of bringing forth fruit. And the fruit was the key. All right? So again, I believe that the first three were unsaved, but there was a variety of responses among them. And one of them, yeah, they received it with joy. But, you know, the thorns, when, when persecution or whatever arose, they, ah, they turned and ran. Why? Because it was choked out. It, the, the fruit didn't come, okay? Um, so I'm just keep that in mind as well as we're talking about this this morning. Matthew chapter 10, I think this is the only example I'm going to get to show you because of time here this morning. Matthew 10, and when he, that's Jesus, had called unto him his 12 disciples. Now, this term is used particularly in Matthew here, but it's talking about the apostles, okay? Um, the ones that we know, and they're going to be named here, all right? But the 12 disciples, apostles, he gave them, notice what this says. He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve, notice this, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into the cities of Samaria, enter ye not, but go rather the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and go, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now notice verse 8. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purse nor script for your journey. And so on and so on. Time forbids to read the whole chapter, but let me ask you this. Who did Jesus give those powers to in this passage? How many of them? Twelve. The last one was who? Judas Iscariot, let me ask you this, was he saved? No, he was not a saved man. But he had great interaction with spiritual things. 
He sat literally close enough beside, I believe, on the left side of Jesus during that Last Supper or the institution of the Lord's Supper, dipped the sop with him. But Satan entered into him. He betrayed Jesus. He certainly wasn't a saved person. But look at what I'm getting at is look at the closeness that he had to salvation, to Jesus himself. In fact, I, I, years ago I preached a message once, kissing the door of heaven and not going in. I mean, he kissed Jesus. It's like there in the garden when he brought the people, betraying him. Jesus gave him opportunity up to that point to not go through with it. Now, in a sense, yes, it had to be done because that was part of the whole plan. And Jesus had to be betrayed and he had to be arrested. He had to suffer many things. He told those disciples this several times, right? He had to. It was necessary for God's plan to be enacted. But he even makes the statement, but woe to him. I mean, the point being, Jesus gave Judas every opportunity. Now, Judas still went through with it. Later, he says he realized he had betrayed innocent blood, went out and hung himself. But there's no sign that he ever repented to salvation. Because I believe in his case, it was too late. He already crossed the line. And again, I'm just using this as an example, and I can't give you others right now because of time, but the people in the book of Hebrews that are being written of, I believe, number one, have to be Jews, not Gentiles, because of what's talked about there. The whole book of Hebrews deals with Hebrew people, right? Okay, But it was people, and, and some believe that it was just Jews in that first century, that had interaction with Jesus and so on, but yet they still chose the temple worship as it was still going on until A.D. 70, okay? And I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying it has to be restricted to those people, but it obviously is talking about people that had great opportunity, but yet still, when the, you know, it, when the end came, so to speak, they turned the other way. They went away from Jesus. They didn't embrace him. So these are talking, Hebrews 6 is talking about people that are unsaved. They've had great opportunity and they've had an interaction. They may have been, if he's, you know, the, the people in the book of Hebrews may have actually been part of the church in the sense that they had, they had made a profession and joined, but they obviously weren't saved. Their heart wasn't right with God. And in the end, they're going to turn out. I mean, John chapter, 1 John, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 19 says, they went out from us because they were not of us. I mean, that's a principle you see in the Bible that people, remember the, in Matthew 13, one of the other parables, the parable of the, the tares, right? The, the, the man who had the fields, you know, his servants went out and sowed his, his, his fields with, with wheat, so to speak. And, and uh, as it grew, they, they went back and said, you know what? Somebody's put tares in here. And he said, well, an enemy's done this while we slept. All right, and, and they're like, well, should we uproot them and all this? And he says, no, let them grow. And he says, in the end, it's going to be taken care of. I mean, I'm paraphrasing greatly here, but, but you understand the point. The point being is it's a truth that's been true since, I mean, probably even in the Old Testament, right? There were a mixed multitude in the, of the Israelites in the Old Testament. 
Not everybody that came out of Egypt was saved, although the nation of Israel was saved, and the Exodus pictures salvation, okay? But that doesn't mean everybody that left Egypt was saved personally with, you know, before God. They had a right standing with God. And that's proven by what they did later, okay? And that's the point. Sooner or later, an unsaved person, even as much as they mix with saved people, sooner or later they'll turn away. It will happen. And what I'm saying is if they're in that position, all right? There are some people that mix with saved people, and they eventually get saved, okay? But the, the, the people talked about in Hebrews 6 are people that don't because they come to a point and they, they turn. They leave. They apostatize. Again, that's what the word, the phrase, fall away in Hebrews 6, verse 6 says, or what it, what, what it is. It's turning from. It's apostatizing. They turn from Christ because they never were saved. They had great opportunity. They had interactions with things. And again, if you examine those phrases, those six qualifications there, except for the, the last one, uh, if they, they apostatize, they turn away, fall away. All right, but those other things, I think very clearly you can see that could be talking about people that were here on the earth when the Lord Jesus was, work, was walking here. I mean, they, they had interaction with his miracles. They saw his miracles. I believe it's fair to say that, that, that some of the people that Jesus healed of things didn't get saved. I mean, an interesting example of that is Luke 17, the 10 lepers, all right? Jesus healed 10 lepers. Only one came back to worship him and thank him. And he asked the question, only this one, and he was a Samaritan, comes, where's the other nine? But, but in that, it says that they were all healed of their leprosy, but that one man, it specifically says in the passage that he was not only healed, but he was made whole. Now, that could be, again, I believe, talking about he was spiritually made whole, right? The others, Jesus healed. I mean, there were multitudes of people that, that were affected by Jesus' works and miracles and so on while he was here on this earth, but they never really followed him. When that day came, they probably, some of them were part of the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, days before Throngs of people were putting palm branches down, and this being so-called Palm Sunday, right? Um, but as it, that, you know, he enters in riding on the donkey, I mean, and all the, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, all the stuff. But where were those people four days later, whenever, when he was, you know, before Pilate? Again, the point being is, just because people have some participation in spiritual things does not mean they're saved. I mean, you think of all the, the, the stories that, uh, I, I don't know if, if everybody here is familiar, that Brother Hammett writes about from Africa. Some of the main people that, that he is working with that have gotten saved are, are guys that have been pastors of churches there for a long time and have been leading people astray. I mean... Now, not all those guys that are in that condition do get saved, but, I mean, it, it's just a, it's an interesting thing how oftentimes we equate, we equate religion and churchy things and all this with salvation, but it's not. I'll mention a few of these things 
in the morning service, Lord willing, but I had participation in religious things for years and years and years and wasn't saved. Now, I would have to say on my behalf in that, that wasn't necessarily knowingly unsaved, but some of these people may have been deceived. But there came a point when they turned away. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, for people in that scenario, in that condition, there's nothing else that can be done. They've had every opportunity afforded to them, but they turn away. And again, in the big picture, that's what he's, every one of these warning passages in Hebrews deals with the seriousness of salvation. Remember, Jesus said that we need to be looking, if we're not, you know, looking for that straightened gate, the narrow way, because many miss it. Few there be that find it. And a lot of those many, they think they're okay. But they've missed it. And that's what he's warning about. Now, we got to hurry and close on this, but notice he says, if they shall fall away, it's, it's impossible to renew them again under repentance. And then he gives this. He says, seeing they crucified themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Again, I personally, I'm not saying, I'm not being dogmatic on this, okay? But I personally believe, again, this pertains to the Jews of that first century who were the ones that really are the ones that delivered him to be crucified. Now, that said, let me insert this so it's not misunderstood, but every single unsaved person who's ever lived on this earth and will yet live on this earth is guilty of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, okay? But there was a particular people that were there that were responsible literally for getting it done. Now, the Romans carried it out, but the Jews are the ones that instigated it and handed him to, handed him to them, all right? And again, I, I personally think that this has to do with that. Uh, but again, I, you, but the principle is there are people that can have all kinds of spiritual interaction, spiritual opportunity, and yet still turn from Christ. And for people in that condition, there's nothing else that can be done. There are some people that have crossed the line who are living on this earth today. They're walking time bombs because they're going to face the wrath of God because they've said no too much, maybe. I mean, there's different details and scenarios of every, circum every person's circumstance, but bottom line is there are people that have crossed the line. And there is such a thing as an unpardonable sin, okay? And I, I think they're related in a sense, but... I don't think what Hebrews is talking about is the exact same thing that Jesus brought up as the unpardonable sin in, I think, Matthew 12. I can't remember the exact passage now. But, um, but the point being, these are unsaved people here that, it, that this is talking about. And the warning is, beware. I mean, think about this from a saved person's perspective. I want to change gears here real quick before I close. You know what? There are times we put ourselves in a dangerous position, not of losing our salvation, but, you know, Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 9 about becoming a castaway. And he's not talking about losing his salvation there, but being set aside, becoming to where the point in your life where you can't be used of God. Now, you know, we, we saw in the book of Jonah how, I mean, Jonah did a lot of, you know, disobeyed, ran from God. God still used him. But it is interesting, at the end of the book of Jonah, 
we're left with a big question mark about Jonah, and we don't hear anything else about Jonah. He is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, but it's probably before, chronologically, before the book of Jonah. But what happened to him? Well, it appears he didn't go on serving God and being used of God. So as a believer, it is, it is possible for us to make such a mess of things in our lives that, that, you know, we're really not useful. Now, thankfully, God wants to use his people and God works in our lives. And I believe that for a Christian, they can cross the line to where God will, you know, if, if they put themselves in such a predicament and don't turn back, to, repent to him and so on, God will take them out of this life. I think it happens more than we might think. Now, we have to be careful in looking at others and making that call, okay? But 1 John talks about a sin unto death. That's something that pertains to a believer, not, a, not an unbeliever. But point is, this is a ser- everything that God says is a serious matter. If you're saved, it's a serious matter. If you're unsaved, salvation is a serious thing. And we, we must be careful to not turn from Christ. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your, your long-suffering, and your patience with us. And, Lord, I pray that you'd work in each of our hearts and lives. I thank you, Lord, that you haven't, uh, as far as I know, folks here, you haven't given up on any of us. And it's not a matter that you give up on us, but I guess we can put ourselves in a position to where you don't use us. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, and help us to be careful and serious as we present salvation to people, that we don't take it too lightly and and gloss over things too much just so we we can think that somebody's saved. But I pray that you would help us to be serious about all that. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen.